If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. I'm watching you. It was the 1990s and I had recently moved into my new apartment. I had a breathtaking view of the city from my 12th floor bedroom window. That amazing view was the last thing I saw before I went to sleep and the first thing I saw when I woke up. The city wasn't the only view I had. I lived across the street from an identical apartment building. I'm a single woman and I do not get off on voyeurism, but at night, if people leave their curtains open, I sometimes catch an eyeful whether I like it or not. It was approximately two months after I moved in when I started receiving the phone calls. The calls usually came in at around 10 p.m. At first I'd answer the phone and they would just hang up right away. That happened almost every night for about two weeks. Then the caller got to the point where they wouldn't hang up immediately. They'd just listen as I repeatedly said hello. At first they'd hang up after five to ten seconds. Then it got to the point where they didn't hang up at all. They just listened silently until I would end the call. It was a cold, rainy Friday night when they spoke for the first time. I had just gotten into bed and was watching TV when the phone rang. I answered, and it was silent for a few seconds before I heard a deep, muffled voice say, I'm watching you. Chills ran down my spine. Could they really see me or were they just messing with me? The fact was, Anyone in the adjacent apartment building could see in my window. Some had a better view than others, but if my curtains were open and I was near the window, I could be seen by anyone over there. I hung up, but every night the calls kept coming in, and the man's voice always said, I'm watching you. I was getting scared. I confided with my co-workers at my office. The other women were concerned. They encouraged me to change my number, which I had considered, but I was more troubled by the fact that this person may actually be watching me. John, my manager, was convinced that it was probably just some pervert fooling around. He doubted that there was anyone really watching me. He proposed that the caller probably dialed my number randomly and had no idea who I even was. That made me feel better. I hoped he was correct, but he wasn't. That very night, I got the most frightening call to that point. Hi, Jill. I'm watching you. Ta-ta. He knew my name. He knew who I was. The next night was even worse. Hello, Jill. You looked very nice today in your yellow sweater and black skirt. Ta-ta. He described exactly what I was wearing. There was no doubt he was watching me. 
It was around this time that I started becoming much more aware of my surroundings and noticed a man sitting on my bench outside my apartment building every night when I came home. He had curly, short black hair and was always reading a newspaper. If I ever made eye contact with him, he'd quickly lift the paper up and shield his face from view. Was this the caller, or was I just getting paranoid? The apartment building had a large parking garage. It was usually pretty quiet, but one night, after getting home from work late, it was deathly silent. I was all alone. My high heels echoed through the vast parking garage, and so did the voice. Jill, I see you. I screamed and ran into the parking garage elevator. I pressed the door close button like a madwoman, but the doors were not shutting, and I could hear the footsteps of the man getting closer. If he reached the elevator before the door shut, I'd be trapped in there with him. I kept hitting every button on the panel, and it seemed like forever, but finally the elevator doors began closing. Just before they sealed shut, I heard the man say one last thing. Ta-ta. The next day at work, I told everyone what happened. I was visibly shaken, and my manager, John, was very comforting and offered to drive me home. I accepted. When we pulled up to the apartment building entrance, I spotted the man on the park bench reading the paper. I explained to John that I suspected that he may be the caller. John asked if I wanted him to walk me to the lobby, and I nodded. The man on the bench didn't act any differently when I walked in accompanied by a man. He simply eyed us and then lifted the paper back up over his face like he normally did. I got the sense maybe he wasn't a probable suspect after all. When we got to the lobby, I thanked John for all he had done. It was my pleasure, and Jill, you really look nice today. Was my manager flirting with me? I wasn't sure and kept my response on the neutral side. Well, thanks, John. I guess I'll see you tomorrow, then. John smirked and winked at me before he strolled out of the building. His parting farewell sent a jolt of terror through my entire body. Ta-ta. It's not easy being a clown. I'm known as Red Bud the Clown, and I absolutely love my job. I wear a bright red Afro-style wig, my face is painted white, and I have red stars painted around each of my eyes. I wear a big red nose, and my mouth is painted into a thick, cheerful, permanent smile. I wear a white baggy clown suit accented by a red neck ruffle, bright soft puffy red buttons down the front, red gloves, and elongated red and white clown shoes. I specialize in everything anyone might want out of a clown. I honk my nose. I wear flowers that squirt water. I'm a master at pratfalls and making world-class balloon animals. 
I can face paint, work wonders with bubbles, sing goofy songs, dance silly jigs, juggle just about anything, limbo with the best of them, tell funny jokes, do magic tricks, and bring any introverted kid out of their shell. But most of all, I'm a master at putting smiles on people's faces. It's not an easy job, you know. It takes high energy and a lot of stamina. I am part comedian, part performer, and part athlete. But it's all worth it to make people happy. I consider myself an ambassador of joy. My schedule was constantly full with birthday parties and hospital shows. They say if you want to be happy in life, find a way to make money doing something you love. And that's exactly what I was able to do. Until recently. My world was turned upside down by colrophobia, better known as the fear of clowns. All of these horror movies and Halloween haunts have cast an ominous light on the clown world and has put a serious hurt on the business. Nowadays, most people who want to hire a clown for a birthday party or hospital show request no face paint. They claim the face paint scares too many people. No face paint? That's not even a real clown. I refuse to participate in society's removal of the traditional clown. Thus, I had to find other ways to make a living doing what I loved. For a while, I was part of a clown troupe for a traveling circus. This involved a lot of pie throwing, riding unicycles, walking tightropes, piling into tiny cars, juggling dangerous objects, and endless pratfalls. It was good work and decent money, but eventually my body wouldn't hold up. Hey, you try doing a full 360 flip and fall on a banana peel 12 times a day and let me know how you feel the next morning. The physicality of the circus was so rough that I thought being a rodeo clown might not take as much of a toll on my body. And I was correct, until the night I tripped over my clown shoes and was almost gored to death by a bull. I tried my hand at a cruise ship clown, but found out the hard way that I get major seasickness. I quickly discovered that nobody likes a vomiting clown. Eventually, I got desperate and had to start taking jobs that were an insult to the clown industry. I was heavily recruited by several Halloween haunts. I explained to them over and over that I was not a scary clown. I was a traditional fun clown. But it turns out that's exactly what they wanted. The way they put it was that nothing is scarier than a clown that doesn't realize they're scary. I basically did my birthday routine, but instead of people laughing with delight, they recoiled in fear. Those gigs paid well, but were seasonal, so then I found myself plummeting into the bizarre world of odd jobs for clowns. The first odd job I had was in a gigantic gothic-style mansion. To my surprise, there were no children to be found, just one attractive woman in her 50s. She paid me to do my birthday act, while she watched and pleasured herself. Apparently there's an entire clown fetish world that I never knew existed. Those people are known as colrophiliacs. I made it clear to these types of people that I wasn't some kind of clown whore. I would not perform sexual acts, but that was fine with them. 
They simply enjoy doing sexual things while I did my traditional act. Now I wasn't giving them smiles, I was giving them orgasms. It was odd, but my work schedule was starting to fill up again. I tried to convince myself that I was still spreading joy, just in a more peculiar way. One night, I thought I was on a typical colrophiliac job. I was given a code to an apartment complex and the key to an apartment. I was instructed to stand in the living room in the dark until the lights came on, then I was supposed to begin my performance. Turns out, the owner of the apartment was not expecting me. She was a woman in her 20s who was deathly frightened of clowns. Her boyfriend hired me as a gag. I was furious, but honestly, the gig paid handsomely, and suddenly I found myself being hired left and right to scare people. I made it clear that I was a happy clown, and I would not try to frighten anyone. And again, I was informed that was exactly what they wanted. One day in early fall, I got hired for the strangest job yet. I received a call from a man whose voice was electronically altered. He gave me directions that took me down a long, lonely gravel back road. There was no civilization to be seen, no houses, no side roads, nothing. I'm not sure where this road led, but luckily I didn't have to find out. I was told to stop next to a huge, burnt tree. He said I couldn't miss it, and he was right. The tree must have been struck by lightning as it was completely charred black. At the base of a tree I was told that I would find a rusty metal candy tin. I was instructed to remove the item within the tin and follow the directions. The candy tin looked antique. It was for some brand of tea that I had never heard of. I instinctively peered around to make sure no one was watching, but obviously that wasn't something I had to worry about being this far out in the sticks. I removed the candy tin and found a key to a P.O. box at a post office in a nearby town. Inscribed on the key were the numbers 111. I drove to the post office, unlocked P.O. box 111, and found a large manila envelope. What I found inside the envelope made my jaw drop. There was a wad of cash, an excessive amount of $100 bills. I quickly thumbed through the bills and guessed it to be in the neighborhood of $10,000. This was my payment. Along with the money was a small sheet of paper. Typed on the paper was an address and these simple instructions. Stand outside. My GPS took me to a fancy Victorian-style house in a well-to-do neighborhood. Donned in my classic clown outfit, I did as the paper said. I stood outside the front door. It was approximately 10 minutes later when I heard an array of police sirens that kept creeping closer and closer until the neighborhood was a strobe of red and blue lights. As I turned around to see what the hubbub was about, I was met by a flurry of police officers rushing toward me with their guns drawn. Hands up, clown! I wasn't even given a chance to comply before I was tackled to the ground, roughed up, handcuffed, and then shoved into the back of a police car. I sat in the interrogation room for over an hour before the detectives arrived and told me to watch the monitor in the corner of the room. On the screen, static-infused security footage emerged. 
I gagged as I watched a man bludgeon a woman to death with a meat tenderizer mallet. The man was dressed as a clown, but not just any clown. He was dressed as Redbud the Clown. Me. I explained to the police what happened and presented them with the P.O. box key, the cash, and the type note that I found within, but upon investigation, they discovered that the P.O. box was rented by someone known as Redbud the Clown. I was had. They told me they had suspected the woman's husband to be the murderer due to him recently taking out a six-figure life insurance policy on his wife. But since they had video evidence appearing to be me murdering the woman, coupled with the fact that I was standing outside the door shortly after the murder had taken place, it let him off the hook. In the future, if I ever get out of prison, I guess I should make sure I have indisputable proof as to who is hiring me for a clown job and exactly why. It's not easy being a clown. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Abandoned House My name is Jim Walton. I'm the owner of an incredibly successful YouTube channel called The Forbidden Adventures in which I seek out and explore abandoned structures. And I've done them all. Abandoned mansions, prisons, asylums, castles, cruise ships, mine shafts, theme parks, resorts, factories, shopping malls, sports stadiums, hotels, theaters. I'm sure I'm missing a few things, but believe me when I say I've done them all. And that was the problem. I was having a hard time finding interesting abandoned locations that were worth exploring and differentiated themselves from explorations that I had already done. My posting of new videos became less frequent and people began to grow tired of my channel. Since new videos were scarce, view counts went down along with my income. I was desperate. So I made a video explaining to my audience why so few new exploration videos had been posted as of late, and I put out a call for new, unique, abandoned structures for me to delve into. Several people responded with suggestions, 
but unfortunately most of those recommendations were buildings that several of my competitors had already been through or were simply lacking the wow factor I was hoping for. That was until a mysterious man named Saxon contacted me. He claimed that he knew of a large abandoned house that was set deep within a forest and that nobody knew about. He insisted that not one other person had ever explored it. That was the part that appealed to me. Most abandoned locations had a fair amount of traffic. Even if nobody else had explored it, it would be a hangout for hooligans, homeless people, or kids looking for a place to party. Thus, most locations were vandalized. The windows were typically shattered, and the walls were usually covered with graffiti. Saxon swore that was not the case with this location. He explained to me that the tenants of this house left abruptly and left everything behind. He maintained that the house was fully furnished and decorated. He described it as stepping back in time. Again, this was a rarity in my business. Most abandoned locations had been thoroughly picked through and didn't have much of interest within other than what the structure itself brought to the game. I told Saxon I wanted to know where the location was, but he wasn't quick to divulge that information. He had some stipulations. First, I was to come alone, which was no problem. I normally did explorations by myself. He told me it would cost me 500 bucks, which I felt was fair. If this place was what he said it was, I'd make a ton of money off of this video. Lastly, he said he wasn't just going to give me an address. He insisted he would take me there himself. I agreed to all of it and hopped on a plane. The location was a few states over from me in western Kentucky. Once I landed, I was to take a cab to an address that Saxon had provided. He told me he'd meet me there. The cab driver was a bit leery as his GPS took us into a ghost town that had long been deserted. Saxon hadn't mentioned the town. If the house he spoke of didn't work out, the ghost town might just do. I thought it was fantastic, but it gave the driver the creeps. He dropped me off in the front of an old cafe. The front windows of the cafe were caked with so much dirt, I couldn't even see into the building. Send the cabbie away. The voice was scratchy and came from within the shadows of a nearby alley. His request was strange, suspicious, eerie, all that, but I understood. This guy was being cautious. This was his golden goose. He didn't want to take a chance of anyone else discovering it, so I paid the cab driver, and he sped away. Once the purr of the cab's engine disappeared into the distance, Saxon stepped out of the alley. Saxon was a tall, slender man in his late forties. He wore a white, food-stained tank top and black pants that were held up by suspenders. His thinning hair was slicked back. His face was riddled with stubble, barely hiding his various acne scars. He had dirty hazel eyes that held a haunting radiance. When he smiled at me, 
he revealed his missing front teeth. Oh, hi. I unconsciously took a step away from him as he approached me. Saxon let out a chuckle. That's the way most people react when they see me. I held up an apologetic hand. I'm sorry, you just caught me off guard. Don't worry about it, I'm used to it. So, where is the place? Is it close by? Saxon gazed at me sternly. Turn around, I gotta blindfold ya. My brow crinkled in confusion. Had I heard him correctly? If you want to see the place, you have to let me blindfold you. Then I'll lead you there. I thought long and hard about his proposal. I was being asked a lot to fully trust this sketchy-looking character. Evidently, Saxon could read the hesitation from my expression and turned to walk away. Fine, deal's off. Wait, I'll do it. Saxon walked back to me and stared blankly at me for an unusually long period of time, causing me to shrug. What? He held out his hand. The 500 bucks. Oh! I took out the cash and handed it to him. He then proceeded to spin me around and blindfold me. From there, he led me into the woods. We traveled through the dense forest for at least an hour. Saxon would occasionally guide me through obstacles saying, Take a long step over this log, or bend down, there's a bunch of tree limbs here. It was when I could hear the steady babble of a nearby river that Saxon instructed me to stop and he removed the blindfold. My first observation was that we were on a much higher ground than I realized as I was looking down over a flowing river cascading through a medley of rocks and boulders. Turn around. I did so and found myself at a loss for words. I was looking at something straight out of a fairy tale. It was a large, sandy-brown, three-story, gingerbread-style house with a plunging roofline, hand-carved lace trim atop the wraparound porch, sawn balusters, and a stained glass front window. This is abandoned? I asked because with the exception of some decay along the edges of the roofline and some flaking of the exterior paint, it looked well-maintained. Amazing, isn't it? As Saxon led me to the front porch, I was astounded. I expected to see some rotten holes along the porch or some broken windows, but I found nothing of the sort. The house looked as though it had been perfectly preserved like some kind of petrified relic. I could see that the front door was partially ajar and felt compelled to ask Saxon for permission to enter, which he found amusing. Saxon then withdrew a pistol from the back of his pants. My mind was whirling, trying to figure out what the best course of action to take was. Ultimately, I just threw up my hands and said, Oh shit. My reaction sent Saxon into a short laughing fit. <laughs> Relax, boy. While you're doing your thing, I'm gonna see if I can rustle me up a few rabbits for dinner. I calmed myself as I watched the enigmatic Saxon disappear into the brush. That was one unusual fellow, but I didn't care about that. My sole focus was on this astonishing house. 
As I pulled out my camera and readied it for action, I found myself wondering about how this incredible home could be lost over time, and what happened to the people who once lived here. I was hoping to find some answers to that mystery inside the abandoned house. As I pushed the front door open, I found myself in a grand foyer with marble flooring that was now covered with a thin layer of dust. In front of me was a magnificent red-carpeted staircase that ended at a large landing before branching off in two different directions. I was anxious to see what was up there, but opted to start downstairs. I stepped out of the foyer and into a large front room. I immediately noticed the musty smell of the mice that were obviously inhabiting the house. The smell and dusty appearance were really the only things that gave away the fact that the house was indeed abandoned. The first thing that caught my eye in the front room was the very old upright piano. I happened to play and was curious as to what kind of shape it was in, so I sat down and began tickling the ivories. As the sound of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata eerily echoed through the ancient house, I realized I picked the wrong tune. In this abandoned setting, the beautiful tune was nothing other than creepy. But the piano worked quite well, with the exception of a few keys that were out of tune. The room was adorned with an old-style red velvet sofa and matching chairs that were positioned around a gigantic oval fireplace. Above the fireplace was an old black and white portrait of a distinguished man and woman. Next to the couple stood a young boy who stared forward in an intense, intimidating way. I like to think that he just had dark brown eyes, and the black and white nature of the picture only made them appear black and evil, but I wasn't so sure. I walked through the hidden pocket doors into the dining room which housed a long mahogany dining table with intricate wood-carved high-backed chairs. There was a china cabinet in the corner that was still full of dishes and a fancy silverware set. The table and cabinet were dusty, but otherwise, everything was in surprising condition. This was a literal time capsule. From there I walked down a long white corridor that I assumed led to the kitchen, but I never made it there. I froze when I heard the distinct sound of footsteps on the floor above me. Saxon, is that you? There was no answer, so I returned to the foyer and climbed up the staircase. When I reached the landing at the top of the stairs, I turned right and began walking down a gloomy hallway. Hello? I still got no answer, but I heard the shuffling sound of someone moving around in one of the rooms at the end of the hall. Who's down there? No answer. I stepped to the end of the hallway. On the wall was another one of those old-time portraits of the family. The man and woman held faint smiles, but that boy was just as menacing as ever. He was a little bit older in this portrait. He was wearing a school uniform and was staring into the camera with those dark, psychopathic eyes. There was a room to my left and a room to my right, 
Both of the doors were closed. I chose the room on the left. I walked into darkness, but was met by a subtle stench of decay. I could hear a few insects buzzing around which made me think an animal had gotten into the room and died. I found my way through the darkness to a window that held thick fabric curtains. When I jerked the curtains open, the room was overwhelmed by sunshine and the source of the decaying stink was revealed. Two Human Skeletons from the clothing the skeletons were wearing, I concluded it to be a man and a woman. Otherwise, I couldn't have been sure. The bodies were lying next to each other atop a lush bedspread. My first thought was suicide. Why else would these bodies be so perfectly placed next to each other? But that was just a quick guess. A loud creak from across the hall caused me to jerk my head around. Hey, who's there? Perhaps I should have been frightened, but I expected that the person stirring around in the house to be Saxon. I just wanted to see what he was up to, so I hurried out of the skeleton's bedroom and into the room across the hall. I immediately recognized this as a young boy's bedroom. There was a small bed against a far wall and a rocking chair next to it. There were toy airplanes hanging from the ceiling and toy soldiers on a nearby dresser. But what really caught my eye were the newspaper clippings. The farthest wall of the bedroom was basically wallpapered in newspaper clippings. The clippings were in chronological order and were held on the wall with pushpins. The clippings had a theme. They were all missing children reports. Specifically missing young girls aged between five and nine. There must have been nearly a hundred of them. The earliest dates of the missing reports I saw were in the late 1980s. I followed the timeline of missing child clippings until they stopped at 1999. This was disturbing. What were these? Why the fascination with collecting clippings of missing girls? Why did they abruptly stop at 1999, over 20 years ago? Then I realized I was mistaken. There was one more newspaper clipping farther down the wall. It wasn't a missing child report. That's why I didn't notice it immediately. It was a newspaper article about the escape of a dangerous mental patient who had been suspected of abducting and murdering young girls. I felt my body go numb with fear when I saw the date on the newspaper article. It was yesterday's date. A steady creaking sound from behind me caused me to whirl around. My knees went weak when I spotted a husky man in his early fifties rocking back and forth in the rocking chair. His voice was unnaturally deep and icy matching his malevolent eyes that I recognized from the portraits on the walls. They were locked onto me. I see you've met my parents. I had to kill them when they found out about my hobby. He motioned to the clippings of the missing girls on the wall. I tried to plead for my life, but no words came out of my mouth, so I ran. 
I bolted toward the room's door, but the muscular maniac rammed into me, knocking me onto my back. He immediately leapt on top of me and wrapped his gargantuan hands around my throat. This big bastard knew exactly what he was doing. I wasn't going to last long. Two loud gunshots rang through the air and the escaped maniac's grip loosened and he collapsed onto me. His dead weight kept me pinned down until Saxon pushed him off of me and held out a hand to help me up. Lucky for you, I gave up looking for rabbits and came back here earlier than I expected to. I had videotaped the entire ghastly experience. It became one of the most watched videos of all time. That near-death experience has not deterred me from continuing to explore abandoned locations. I just never go without my now good friend Saxon and his loaded gun. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. War is hell. World War II was nearing its end. We knew this was going to be our final battle, and by the looks of things, this was going to be a doozy. I told my good friend Jammer to stick close to me. Jammer was a genuine good man. He was a meek and gentle soul. He certainly wasn't a killer. And somehow he made it through the entire big bastard of a war without killing anyone, which was a good thing. I honestly don't think he could have lived with himself if he had. In no time, the bullets were flying and grenades forced us from the safety of our bunker. We charged toward the German front, screaming like wild men, and the engagement was fierce. I quickly ran through the bullets in my rifle and used my bayonet to spear multiple Germans before I dropped it in the battle. Jammer took cover behind me as I withdrew my sidearm and found myself in a showdown with a tall, white-haired soldier. We both took multiple wild shots at each other before the German dove into a jeep. The rear tires of the vehicle splattered mud through the air as he peeled away. I was determined to get him. I bolted toward the jeep, which wasn't able to gain much speed in the mushy, blood-soaked mud of the ground. Still. He had quite a distance on us when I happened upon another jeep. The driver was lurched over dead. I pulled the body out of the jeep and Jammer and I gave chase to the escaping German. As I gained ground on the jeep ahead of us, I raised my firearm and unloaded the remainder of my bullets at the rear of the jeep, but didn't hit my target. I turned to Jammer. Fire at that jeep, Jammer! Fire away! Jammer raised his pistol and let forth with multiple shots, hitting both of the jeep's back tires, causing the jeep to skid to a jolting halt. I skid through the mud, stopping next to the disabled jeep and the helpless German, but I was out of ammo. It was up to Jammer to do the job. Shoot him, Jammer! Shoot him! 
Jammer raised his pistol and pointed at the German's head. The German soldier knew he was defeated and stared stoically at Jammer, waiting to meet his fate. Shoot him, Jammer! Shoot him! Jammer looked at me with a pleading expression. His eyes were filled with tears and his bottom lip was quivering. I, I can't do it, Sam. I can't do it. I hollered at him. Jammer, damn it, you pull that trigger right now. Do you hear me? Right now. Jammer pulled the trigger and a loud click rang through the air. He was out of bullets. The German soldier flinched at the sound of the click and then slowly dropped his head into his hands and began to weep. I waited a moment to see if the German was going to opt for hand-to-hand -hand combat, but he did not. The fight was gone from him, and as I found myself smiling, I realized it was gone from me as well. This was a proper way to end the war. Holy shit, that was incredible! I shook Jammer enthusiastically and then leaned over and gave the German soldier several pats on the back. What's your name, soldier? The German lifted his head from his hands and grinned, knowing that today was not going to be the day he died. Rolf. He and Jammer gazed at each other for a long moment, grinning. I wasn't sure which one was more relieved that the gun was out of bullets. They then shook hands. The three of us shared an instant bond that would be unbreakable for the rest of our lives. More than that, we became friends. Years after the war, we often got together and shared good times, but we never talked about the day that brought us together ever again. That was in the past. Fast forward 20 years after that fateful day. I found myself in a hospital for a minor procedure. The unfortunate thing was that it happened to coincide with the time that Rolf, Jammer, and I were all going to meet up. When I received a call from Jammer telling me that he and Rolf were going to stop by, it made my day. I was all smiles as I walked to the room where they were going to meet me. I couldn't wait to see my old friends again. I wanted to hug them and look into their life-filled eyes and watch them smile back at me. It was going to be a great day. When I walked into the room, I was surprised that Jammer and Rolf weren't there. The only person in the room was Dr. Lewis. She was a woman in her 40s with short auburn hair and glasses. She wore a medical coat and was holding a notebook. She was sitting in a chair with her legs crossed. Dr. Lewis, what are you doing here? I was expecting Jammer and Rolf. She motioned to a chair in front of her. Sit down, Sam. As I sat down, I asked the question, Where are Jammer and Rolf? She gazed at me for a long time before she answered, They're dead, Sam. I was shocked. My mouth fell open. I, I shook my head in disbelief. What? what? How? What happened? Dr. Lewis leaned forward. They've been dead for 20 years, Sam. I shook my head. This, this woman was crazy. I just talked to Jammer on the phone. Didn't I? Sam, 20 years ago on the battlefield, you and your friend Jammer caught up to the German soldier in the jeep. He was defeated. You implored Jammer to shoot him. Do you remember that? I nodded. 
Yes, of course I remember. Jammer pulled the trigger, but thankfully, his gun was empty. No, Sam. The gun was not empty. Jammer shot the German soldier, Rolf, in the head and killed him. And then knowing that he could never live with that, he placed the gun under his chin and killed himself in front of you. This couldn't be true. Why was Dr. Lewis doing this? Why was she making this story up? Why was she lying to me? Only I realized that she wasn't lying. It was true. It all happened as she said, and I've never been able to recover from it. I gazed about at my surroundings and realized that I wasn't in a medical hospital at all. I was in a psychiatric hospital. It had been my home since that fateful day. The Distress Call I own a very successful boat manufacturing company. Being a workaholic, I normally work late into the night before returning home, but one random Thursday afternoon, I decided to take off early and give my wife a nice surprise. But the surprise was on me when I walked into our bedroom to find her in bed with another man. It shouldn't have been a shock. My sexy wife, who was nearly 20 years my junior, married me for my money. I guess I knew that all along, but had convinced myself that there was more to it than that. In reality, this was probably inevitable. The good news was, when I divorced her for her infidelity, I'd be able to get out of it without having to pay a dime in alimony. But still, I needed to drown my sorrows, so... I took to my happy place, which happened to be my 70-foot luxury sport yacht. I was accompanied by a bottle of Southern Comfort. I chugged the liquor down as my ship skipped through the choppy ocean toward the horizon. I stopped to watch the sunset and passed out shortly thereafter. I was so distraught when I took to the ocean that I hadn't even bothered to check the weather reports, thus was completely unaware of the approaching storm that was complemented by gale-force winds. I woke up to find my yacht bobbing up and down in the rough waters like a fishing bobber. I was in the Navy for over 20 years and I'm a licensed captain. I had been in much more dire conditions than these with less stable vessels. I'd get out of this without too much difficulty. I would just have to give the sea my full attention, which, in my still inebriated state, would require more determined focus than normal. As I got control of my yacht and set a course for the mainland, I heard the distress call. It wasn't the typical mayday call. This was pure panic. I could hear the caller distinctly yell out, What the hell is that? His tormented cry was followed by multiple people screaming out in terror. I was able to get in contact with the Coast Guard, but their nearest cutter was over an hour from the vessel in question. When I peered out of my cabin window, 
and saw the hulking body of the cruise ship looming over my yacht like a ghostly mountain, I realized I was the one that could answer the distress call the fastest. The cruise ship wasn't one of the mammoth ships most are used to seeing nowadays. It was simultaneously considered a small cruise ship and one of the largest full-rigged sailing ships in the world. It was the type of ship that could accommodate approximately 200 guests. This type of vessel lacked the activities of the Goliath cruise ships, but was not without its fair share of luxurious amenities. I imagined it boasted two or three restaurants, at least one swimming pool, and an unrestricted atmosphere. Smaller ships such as this were able to dock at a variety of locations that the grand cruise ships are too large to navigate. What was likely a cozy, inviting sight mere hours ago was now a dark, lonely structure. The electricity was blown. Even the emergency lights that such a ship would have were not functioning. The dark, shadowy ship bobbed up and down in the water like a top. When the lightning would briefly illuminate the ship, I could see no sign of life whatsoever, which was odd. Where was everyone? I used the constant strobe of intense lightning to lead my way to the side of the vessel. I was able to cast a line to one of the ship's ladders and dock my yacht alongside it so I could ascend the ladder. I found myself extremely thankful that the cruise ship was as small as it was when the rope ladder swung in the wind and occasionally slammed me against the ship's hull. It only took me a few minutes to hop over the cruise ship's railing and find myself standing on the ship's deck. It was eerily dark and silent. I shined my flashlight in every direction but saw no evidence of anyone. As I walked down the dreary deck toward the ship's bridge, I peered into the various cabin windows I passed. They were too dark to see within. The absence of life on the ship was unsettling, so I called out, Hello? Can anyone hear me? I could hear multiple people scurrying on the deck above me, but I got no response. I shined my flashlight over the quiet, vast deck at the ship's bow and then ascended a flight of steps that took me to the ship's bridge. As I stepped into the pilot house where the ship's wheel can be found, I discovered the first signs of distress. The pilot house was void of any seamen, but the front window was smashed in. Shattered glass was scattered throughout the cabin. I shined my light around the room and spotted a clear trail of blood leading out of the pilot house. I followed the trail of blood into a darkened restaurant. The tables had all been tossed about, bar stools were knocked over, the mirror behind the bar was broken, as were the majority of the glasses that once hung elegantly over the bar. The damage seemed more extreme than I would have expected from the ocean's conditions. There was no doubt in my mind that something else caused this. But what? I walked out of the restaurant and into a small casino area. Much like the restaurant, the casino was in disarray. Tables were toppled over, chips were scattered everywhere, and the trail of blood on the floor intensified. I followed the blood to the ship's main lounge. 
One of the huge padded swinging doors to the lounge was ripped off its hinges. When I stepped over the door into the lounge, I was met by a powerful iron-laced scent of fresh blood mixed with death and salt water. As I shined my light about, I first noticed that all of the windows in the lounge had been boarded up and the back door to the lounge had been barricaded with various chairs and tables. As I looked back at the entrance at which I came through, I could see that this was the case there as well, only something had busted through this barrier. When the beam of my flashlight cast a glow on the center of the lounge, I could see that this was where all of the crew and passengers came to seek refuge from... something. In front of me was a mass of shredded humanity. There were hundreds of people who had been ripped to pieces. Various body parts were strewn about like oversized toothpicks. Entrails and unrecognizable chunks of tattered human meat were flung all about the room. The once bright colorful walls were now drenched with dark blood splatter. The combination of the grisly sight and the unsettled alcohol in my belly caused me to add my vomit to the ghastly scene. Nobody survived this bloodbath. I thought perhaps my obvious assumption would be proven incorrect when I heard scampering on the decks outside the lounge. I cast my light beam onto the lounge windows in hopes of spotting some survivors, but the windows were too obstructed from the barricade to see through. However, through the ragged slits of the blockade, I could see movement of figures outside. The sound of their scuttling was growing distant as they ran toward the ship's stern. Hey, wait! As I bolted through the lounge doors toward the sound of the survivors, I began to hear the distinct sound of someone plunging over the side of the ship and smacking down into the relentless waves of the ocean below. This sound was followed by another plunge, and another. I could hear dozens of people hurling themselves overboard. They must have mistaken me for whatever was responsible for this massacre. Wait, no, don't jump! As I hustled down the deck, I found myself standing on the observation deck just in time to watch one of the last two dark figures throw themselves over the rail. No! I held my flashlight out, and the beam of light illuminated the final survivor. As they turned around and stared at me, I realized I wasn't looking into the eyes of one of the victims. I was staring at one of the monsters responsible for the slaughter. And when I say monster, I mean that literally. The creature I was staring at was not human. The monster was seven feet tall and covered with glistening murky teal scales. Its arms were long and bulky. Its talon-like claws were larger than a grizzly bear and webbed. Its legs were short and muscular, and its feet looked like divers' flippers. Its face held a resemblance to that of a humanoid fish with bulbous lips that barely housed its rows of razor teeth. It had fins where a human's ears would be and its eyes were beady and glowing yellow. 
The beast scowled at me and let out a hideous, high-pitched, clacking roar that sounded like a demented, sinister form of a whale song. And with that, the beast hopped over the rail, joining its partners in the blackness of the ocean. I raced from the cruise ship to the safety of my yacht and sped away from the horrific scene. How would anybody believe such a fantastic story? Most would deem me to be drunk or mentally disturbed. Hell, some may think I was involved in that butchery in some way. Ultimately, I thought it best to keep it to myself. And I've never had the courage to go back out on the ocean since. Maggots. I woke up in the middle of the night. This wasn't unusual as of late. I'd only lived in the house for a month, and I wasn't used to it yet. When my husband was away on business, I found myself overcome with a sense of loneliness. I went to the bathroom and took a shot of water from a Dixie cup. As I exited the bathroom and walked toward my bed, it appeared as though the sheets were convulsing and fluttering around, as though agitated by air, but there was no fan on. The air was motionless. This shouldn't have been happening. As I walked closer, it was evident that there was something squirming and thrashing underneath the sheets. What was it? I grabbed the edge of the sheet, yanked it off, and screamed. Thousands upon thousands of fat, slimy maggots were wriggling about on my bed. They seemed to be multiplying by the second as the mound of hideous creatures grew and they fell off in clumps onto the bedroom floor and began slinking toward me. Within seconds they were up to my ankles and then my knees. When they were waist high, I couldn't move. I was standing in a quicksand pit of maggots. By the time they reached my neck, I felt like I was standing in a squirming vat of wet cement. A few seconds later, they reached my mouth and wriggled their way down my throat and into my lungs. I woke up in a cold sweat, gasping for air. I jumped up, flipped on the bedroom lamp, and looked down at my bed. It was normal. Not a maggot in sight. It was nothing more than a horrible nightmare. I wasn't able to sleep the rest of the night. My husband arrived back from his trip early that afternoon. I don't know that I had ever been so happy to see him. I grabbed him and hugged him so tight that he started to chuckle. <laughs> well, hello there. I missed you too. As he stepped into the house, I noticed that his suit was covered in dirt. What happened? Why are you so filthy? He turned to me and smiled. He had the fullest, brightest smile I had ever seen. No matter what other aspects of him aged, his beautiful teeth remained the same as if trapped in time. But there was something different about his smile on this day. His teeth appeared to be... moving. I guess I looked confused because he kept asking me over and over what was wrong. I moved in for a closer look and squinted to see more clearly. 
your teeth. They're... they're moving. He held his belly like a drunken Santa Claus and laughed heartily, and his teeth continued to squirm. Only they weren't teeth at all. They were maggots, and they began spilling from his mouth in droves. I woke up on the couch. It was early afternoon. Unlike in the nightmare I just had, my husband wasn't home. He wasn't due for a few more days. The sun shining through the window was warming my face as if beckoning me to go outside, so I answered the call and began working in my flower garden. This was a passion of mine. It helped to put my mind at ease and allowed me to find a relaxed state. That's what I needed. It would help me get my mind off my horrid nightmares, which was exactly what I needed at that moment. I drove my garden shovel into the soft, churning earth and realized there was no dirt in my garden. Only maggots. Giant, juicy, wiggling maggots. They were twisting, turning, and crawling. The sight of the entire ground gyrating with the bodies of millions of maggots made me nauseous, and I began vomiting. Maggots. I could feel their bodies worming their way up my throat and blasting out of my mouth in projectile form. And I couldn't stop. The maggots had infested my body and my heaving of the slithering milky insects had become constant to the point where I could no longer breathe. I was suffocating. I woke up to the sound of knocking on the door. I must have looked distressed when I answered because the elderly woman's first remark was, Oh my dear, are you feeling okay? She ushered me into my own home and poured me a drink of water. I thanked her and guzzled it down as if I were a boxer in between rounds. As I got my wits about me, I finally spoke up. Who are you? The frumpy woman appeared to be in her late seventies. She was wearing a gray skirt suit and smiled as she spoke. My name is Gladys. I am your next door neighbor. She held out a bouquet of flowers. These are for you. I picked them from your flower garden. I took the flowers and my face shriveled up in disgust as I realized they were writhing with maggots. Did you know that the woman who lived here before you was a lunatic? I dropped the maggot-infested flowers and looked up at the old woman whose skin appeared to be bubbling. She held a frozen smile as slippery, bloated maggots began dripping from her eye sockets and gushing from her nose. Her bubbling skin began to burst and greasy, swollen maggots slithered their way out from her gooey wounds. I woke up in my bed. It was dark. I peered at the clock that informed me it was 12.38 a.m. Why was I having these disgusting, maggot-themed nightmares? I sat up in bed for hours and put the puzzle together in my mind. Maggots where I slept, my husband covered in dirt, the old neighbor sighting a crazy woman who used to live here, my flower garden overtaken by maggots. I leapt from the bed, ran out to the backyard, grabbed a shovel from the shed, and began digging up my flower garden. Six feet under, 
I found the partially decayed body of a man. He was covered in maggots. I immediately called the police. The man was the previous owner of the house. One day, his wife claimed that her husband went out for a jog and never returned. He was simply considered missing. An autopsy revealed that the man had been poisoned. His wife had murdered him, and she may have gotten away with it if it weren't for my repulsive dreams. She was arrested and now resides in a psychiatric hospital. After finding the man's body, I never had a maggot nightmare again. Broken taillight. While driving home from work one evening, I noticed I was the only vehicle on the expressway. That's one of the best aspects of my odd 10 to 7 office hours. I completely bypass rush hour to and from work. It literally saves me at least 45 minutes each way. I had some smooth jazz playing on the radio. I set my cruise control to the speed limit and was leaning back in my car enjoying my leisurely drive home when out of nowhere an older model Buick zoomed past me. Boy, that maniac sure was in a hurry. My eyes were instantly drawn to the large trunk of the old car. They sure didn't make vehicles like that anymore. I admired it, but as I gazed at the car's rear end, I noticed one of the taillights was broken and there seemed to be some kind of red rag sticking out of it, flowing in the wind. At first, I thought they had stepped the rag into the taillight to make it less obvious to police that it was broken, but then I noticed that the rag was being waved around in an unnatural manner. That's when I saw the hand. It was a feminine hand hanging out of the broken taillight. She was waving around a red piece of fabric, obviously hoping to alert someone to her presence. It appeared that the guy driving the car had kidnapped this woman and stuffed her into the trunk. I immediately took action. I pounded on the accelerator, pulled up next to the big beast of a car, and got a good look at the driver. He looked of average size and had greasy, messy hair. He appeared nervous from the fact that I was gawking at him, and he was right to feel that way. I picked up more speed, swerved in front of the behemoth vehicle, and cut him off onto the shoulder of the road. I grabbed my 38 revolver from my glove compartment and raced to his driver's side door before he had a chance to take any action. I tapped on the glass of his window with the barrel of the gun. I watched as he slumped down into the seat, dejected. He knew he had been caught and slowly rolled down his window. I gave him a smirk. What you got in the trunk? He didn't answer. He just opened his door and stepped out in a defeated state. He simply took slow, disheartened steps to the back of the vehicle while fiddling with his keys. He looked at me with sad puppy dog eyes before he popped the trunk open. The woman inside was in her early 20s. She had bleached blonde hair and big boobs. Her face was covered with tear tracks of mascara. 
Her ankles were still duct-taped together as her wrists once were, but not surprisingly, she had found a way to tear through the tape enough to get her arms free. She was wearing a ripped red blouse. My impression was that she ripped the blouse herself, and that was what she was using to signal me. She popped up quickly and let out a scream. She was trying to say something, help, or maybe thank you. It was completely unintelligible, and honestly, I really didn't care. I smashed her in the face with the butt of my revolver, rendering her unconscious. She collapsed back into the trunk of the vehicle, and I slammed it shut. The man's eyes widened as he stared at me, unsure of what was going on, so I explained. Never use duct tape. It's too easy for them to find something to rub it on and tear it apart. I recommend parachute cord. Learn how to tie some good knots. And while transporting, stick to back roads and side streets. Never get on the expressway unless you have no other choice. And for God's sake, drive the speed limit. At the speed you were going, you were practically begging for a cop to pull you over. I gave the young man a pat on the upper arm and started back to my vehicle. I stopped when I heard the messy-haired man call out. Hey, buddy. Uh, thanks. I pointed my finger at the man and gave him a wink. Hey, guys like us gotta stick together. The Farmhouse I go to college approximately one hour from home. Due to this luxury, I go back home on weekends once or twice a month. My dad is a worrier and advised me to always stick to the main roads. He said a cute 19-year-old girl should be wise and do all they can to avoid getting stranded out in the middle of nowhere. I usually took that advice. Well, Sometimes I did. Okay, actually, I rarely took that advice. I'm not the best driver in the world, and expressways make me nervous. I don't like driving at high speeds, and having other cars zooming past me at 90 miles per hour makes me break out in a cold sweat. I am much more comfortable and relaxed taking quiet back roads when I travel, so... I never mentioned to my dad that as long as the weather is decent, I take serene routes. I departed from school on a Friday evening. It had been a beautiful day. The sun was beaming, the birds were chirping, and even though the sky was getting dark, there was a bright full moon out that made it feel almost like daytime. Thirty minutes into my trip, a monstrous storm snuck up on me. The blackened sky crept over the full moon, casting a dreary blanket of darkness over everything. The wind began to whistle and started to push my little hatchback all over the road. When the rain started, the trouble really began. I swear, it was as though an army of people dumped hundreds of buckets of water on my windshield all at once. My pathetic windshield wipers couldn't keep up and my vision was a complete blur. This coinciding with the fact that I happened to be on a thin, winding road caused me to go skidding off into a ditch. My passenger side front and rear tires were sunk deep into the oozing mud. 
They spun and spun when I hit the accelerator, but my car wouldn't budge. I was stuck, and I was stuck good. I pulled out my cell phone. I would have preferred to have called some friends, but none of them were within reasonable driving distance. I had no choice but to call my dad and get an earful that was probably warranted. As I dialed the number, I was notified that I was out of signal range. And there I was, a cute 19-year-old girl, stranded in the middle of nowhere just as my father had warned. I sat there for several minutes contemplating what to do. As I looked blankly ahead, coming up with no good plan, I noticed a light blink on not too far away. I stared out for a good minute before I realized there was a house right across the street. Perhaps they had a phone I could use. I jumped from my lopsided car and darted up the inclined driveway toward the house that sat atop a modest hill. It was an old two-story farmhouse. The wood siding was dark and weathered from age. The railing that wrapped around the covered porch appeared warped. As I looked up at the roof, which was missing several shingles, I noticed that one of the windows on the second floor had bars on it. It made me wonder if this was some kind of an institution, but it couldn't be. I mean, it was obviously just an old farmhouse. I rushed to the shelter of the front porch, brushed my soaked hair from my eyes, and stepped up to the front door. The door was thick and solid and held a large, intimidating cast-iron door knocker in the shape of a wolf's head. I grabbed the big knocker and thudded it against the door a few times and waited. It was less than a minute later when the big door slowly creaked open. Standing before me was a small, meek girl who looked to be about ten years old. She was pale and her long black hair was tied back into a ponytail. She wore a straight, plain black dress that would have made Wednesday Adams proud. She spoke softly. Yes? I'm sorry to bother you, but my car is stuck in the ditch. Do you have a phone I can use? Her stoic expression never changed as she spoke. Of course. Please come in out of the wet. I stepped into the house that appeared to have the same decor as it likely had 100 years ago. Sturdy antiques were the furniture of choice. The walls were adorned with several old black and white photos and the worn wooden floor looked original. But with all that being said, the place was clean and well kept. Thanks a lot, I really appreciate- I hadn't finished my sentence when the young girl held a finger up to her dry lips and continued to speak in a reserved, docile voice. Shh. My brother Gabriel is upstairs sleeping. You wouldn't want to wake him. She motioned for me to step into the front room, which consisted of a Victorian-style couch and matching chairs. A large stand-up radio was positioned against the far wall, in the place most people nowadays would have put a TV. The girl led me to a primitive black rotary phone that sat on the end table next to the couch. Help yourself, but please, keep your voice down. I gave her a smile and picked up the phone. Instead of a dial tone, I heard a recorded voice say, No service. Please try again later. 
It's not working. The pale girl put her ear to the phone and nodded. Sometimes the phones go out during a storm. You're welcome to wait until it passes. She gestured toward the couch. I thanked her in a whisper and sat down. I figured I didn't have much choice. Would you like something while you wait? I shook my head. No, no, I'm fine, thank you. Apparently, the young girl was not taking no for an answer. I'll return with some hot chocolate and a snack. The gloomy girl disappeared down the hallway, leaving me alone. I gazed about the room and my eyes were drawn to an ornate wood-carved cuckoo clock in the center of the wall. It was spectacular. The story told through the carving seemed to be Little Red Riding Hood. There were lots of carved wolf heads and young ladies in hooded cloaks. It wasn't long before my hostess returned with a mug of hot chocolate and a can of sardines that she took the liberty to open for me. The thought of eating one of the sardines made me want to puke, but the little girl, who was starting to give me a creepy vibe, was staring at me as if waiting to make sure I was satisfied. I did my best to act, please. Oh boy! Sardines! I removed one of the dead fish from the container and made a point not to look at it. I politely stuffed it in my mouth, held my breath as I chewed, and swallowed it down. Mmm! I was hoping that my face wasn't giving off a sickly shade of green because I felt slightly nauseous by the fact that I just ingested that salty thing. The girl pointed to the mug in front of me. Sardines go well with hot chocolate. I nodded politely, picked up the mug, and took a sip of the so-called hot chocolate. First of all, it was lukewarm at best. Secondly, it wasn't sweet. It tasted like it was made from baking chocolate. It was a lot thicker than I would expect hot chocolate to be as well, but at least it washed out the horrible aftertaste of the sardine. Is there anything else I can get for you? I quickly shook my head. No, no, this is plenty. Thank you. At that moment, a plump, older woman entered the room. She wore a dress that was mostly covered by her food-stained apron. Her dark hair was sprinkled with gray, and dark circles had found a home under her eyes. She stared at me and began looking me up and down before speaking with a concerned tone. Oh dear. She leaned over and spoke quietly to the young girl. Is Gabriel home? Yes, mother. He hasn't seen her yet, has he? No, mother. Gabriel is still asleep. The mother let out a relieved breath. Oh, good. Good. It was at that time that I started getting very uncomfortable and anxious. Not only did I now feel like I was intruding, I felt like I was possibly in danger. I really don't want to be a bother. I think I'll wait in my car until the storm passes. The mother's gaze moved from me to the staircase near the front door that winded into the darkness of the second floor. She spoke while still peering up the stairs. Perhaps that would be best. I was in full agreement as I got up and headed for the door. As I reached for the front doorknob, I was startled when the door burst open and a man in his late fifties quickly stepped in out of the rain. He was wearing an oil-stained baseball cap and a dirty lambskin bomber's jacket. 
He appeared as shocked to see me as I was to see him. Who the hell are you? My nerves began to overwhelm me and I could feel my hands begin to tremble. Uh, I, my, my, my car. The man rushed past me and I could hear him confronting the woman and the girl. What the hell is she doing here? The young girl's stone expression and stoic tone never changed as she attempted to explain. Her car is stuck outside. The man was livid. He spoke in a sharp whisper, clearly attempting to keep his voice down. I don't care. You know you can't have a young woman like this anywhere near Gabriel. Is his door bolted? The little girl shook her head. Well, get up there and bolt it! Hurry! The girl moved swiftly up the stairs. Shortly after, she disappeared into the darkness of the second floor. The clanging of metal could be heard. This was followed by the deep voice of a male who I presumed to be Gabriel. Hey, what are you doing? The pale girl hurried back down the steps and reported to the man. I bolted the door, but Gabriel is now awake. The man turned his attention to me. His face was full of fear. We have to get you out of here. As the man rushed toward me, I could hear Gabriel upstairs. He was pounding on the door and spoke in a deep growl. Let me out. The man opened the front door and pushed me outside into the storm while turning and snapping at the woman and the girl one final time. You two must be crazy to let a young woman inside on the night of a full moon. No sooner had the words left the man's voice when I heard the bone-shaking, guttural growl of a beast coming from that room upstairs. The man raced outside with me and then stopped, grabbed me by the upper arms and shouted at me so that he could be heard loud and clear over the downpour of the rain and the roar of thunder. Get into your car. Don't get out no matter what. I'm going to pull you out of that ditch. As soon as you're clear, get out of here. Do you hear me? Drive away and don't look back. Girls your age are his favorite meal. He'll stop at nothing to get you. Do you understand? He'll stop at nothing. The man gave me a shove toward the road as he darted off in a different direction toward a large truck at the end of the driveway. I couldn't help but scream as I ran down the driveway into the street and to my imprisoned car. Just before I opened the door and I jumped in, I turned my head over my shoulder and looked up at the second floor of the house and at that window that had the bars over it. An ominous light appeared in the room and I could see the hulking silhouette of a hairy beast gripping the iron bars and shaking them with fury. My screams were overpowered by a deafening, raucous howl. I jumped into my car, slammed the door shut, and locked the doors. As I did this, the man's truck zoomed up in front of me. He rapidly fastened a chain to the front of my car and began trying to pull me out of the ditch. I watched on in horror as the big truck's back wheels began to spin fruitlessly. My car was not moving an inch. As the revving of the truck's engine filled the stormy night, it was eclipsed by the ravenous roar of the werewolf. I made the mistake of looking up at the window on the second floor again and witnessed the iron bars buckling under the werewolf's strength and begin bending apart. The man's cautionary statement echoed through my mind. He'll stop at nothing. He'll stop at nothing. Suddenly I felt a staggering jolt and all at once my car was freed from the muck and sitting on the road. 
The man jumped out of his vehicle, removed the chain, and waved me on. Go, go, go! I floored it toward the full moon that was peeking through a momentary break in the storm clouds and didn't slow down until the booming howl of the werewolf disappeared in the distance behind me. No skin in the game. My refrigerator broke. It's a side-by-side -side refrigerator with the freezer on the left side and the refrigerator section on the right. For over 17 years, this refrigerator had never given me a problem. Then one day, I noticed a puddle under the freezer door. I opened it to find all my frozen items defrosting. A lot of guys are handy with appliances. I'm not one of them, so I called a repairman. He came out the next day and was super nice. He took off the back panel and examined the guts of the appliance. He replaced a minor part of the refrigerator in hopes that was the only problem, then let out a sigh and said, Oh boy. Turns out the compressor went bad. In case you didn't know, the compressor is one of the most important and expensive parts of a refrigerator. He informed me that it was going to cost me approximately 850 bucks to have my old refrigerator repaired. Being an honest person, the repairman explained to me that a good rule of thumb for considering a repair job versus a new refrigerator is that if the repair costs more than half of what it would cost to buy a new fridge, it's better just to get a new one. It appeared that a new refrigerator was in my future. I got on the internet and scoured through all the major appliance retailers and searched for my new refrigerator and after a fair amount of investigating, I finally narrowed the search down to the refrigerator of my future. It was the same brand as my old one, same style, and had the exact dimensions. It was basically just a newer version of my old faithful fridge. One of the major home improvement stores had the refrigerator on sale and offered next day delivery for free. They'd even haul off my old refrigerator for me. The final cost was just $400 more than it would have cost to have the old refrigerator fixed. Sounded like a great deal to me. It was a chilly night, colder than a freezer, so I took all my refrigerated and frozen items, including 10 pounds of chicken fillets I had just purchased, and set them outside on the balcony. That would definitely keep them sufficiently cool until the new refrigerator arrived. I used my final vacation day of the year to take off work the next day to make sure I was home for the delivery. It was a bit of a downer that I had to use a vacation day on something like this, but you know, what can you do, right? It was early in the day when the delivery driver called me and said he'd be at my location within 15 minutes. I advised him to go around the back of the building and to call me when he got there. I live in an old building in the downtown section of a historic town. My apartment is on the third floor. It's above a very nice antique store. The stairs to get up to my apartment are not friendly. There are over 40 steps, and it's not a straight shot. The stairs zigzag, similar to stairwells in tall buildings. 
There are five to seven stairs and then a landing, at which point you turn 180 degrees and go up the next flight of five to seven stairs and so on until you reach my apartment. It's a pain to move big heavy items up and down. When the driver called, I came down to meet him. I was surprised that the delivery truck was not displaying the name of the home improvement store I purchased the refrigerator from. It was just an old beat up moving truck. The driver exited the truck. He wasn't very big, as I would have expected a mover to be. He was tall, but on the wiry side. I probably outweighed him by 50 pounds. His hair was greasy and unkempt. He held a permanent scowl that revealed tobacco-stained teeth. He pointed to me. You the fella who ordered the refrigerator? Evidently, the home improvement store used a third-party delivery service. Even though the truck and delivery man were not what I was expecting, he did confirm that he was here to deliver the refrigerator, and I was getting excited. Sure, I'd miss my old fridge, but a sparkling brand new one would look fantastic in my kitchen, and I was anxious to get it in place. But first things first. Show me where you want us to haul this thing to. I led the delivery man to the back door of the building and started showing him the challenging steps. He wasn't happy. Damn, they didn't tell me there were so many stairs. As I toured him through the entire staircase, he occasionally pulled out a dirty tape measure to gauge various sections. He then removed his phone from his pocket. He put his phone on speaker as he called his partner out in the truck. Hey, Mac, we have three stories of stairs here. His partner didn't attempt to hide his dismay. What? You gotta be kidding, damn it! Listen, just get the refrigerator ready, you understand? There was a long pause before his associate responded by saying, Oh yeah, okay. When the delivery man and I stepped out of my building and approached the truck, the second delivery person, who was robust and bald, was standing next to my shiny new fridge and pointed to it as he broke the bad news. We have damage here. The thin delivery man pretended to be upset, but he wasn't a very good actor. Ah, that's a shame. I stared at my would-be refrigerator. There were two large ball-peen dents on the bottom of the front door. The top of the door had scratches running across it as if a bear had attacked it. The main delivery man was quick to present the only option I had. Obviously, you'll want to refuse this as a damaged product. I'll report this and someone will give you a call to reschedule another delivery. I found myself turning red with anger. It was early in the week. I had just used my last vacation day to be available for this delivery. A another delivery? Will it be later today? The delivery man shook his head. You'll have to work that out with customer service when they call you, but it will probably be tomorrow or the next day. Will you guys be delivering it? The unkempt man smirked. Nah, it'll be another team. And with that, they drove off. I waited by the phone the rest of the day and never received a call. By the time I attempted to call myself, their customer service hours for the day had ended. I went to work the next day and called the company from work. 
I was on hold for over an hour before I was connected with a not-so-friendly agent who informed me that I needed to talk to the warehouse in order to get my delivery rescheduled. She transferred me and I was on hold for another hour. During this time, my jerk-off boss noticed I was spending an excessive amount of time on non-work calls and gave me an earful. But eventually, I got through to the warehouse and they rescheduled my refrigerator delivery for the next day. It had gotten warm during the day, warmer than I expected, and the ten pounds of newly acquired chicken was no longer light pink. The fresh color had faded slightly, but I deemed it to still be good. The night was supposed to be cool, so I was still in good shape not to lose any food. The next day I called in sick so I could be home for the delivery. The delivery people arrived late in the afternoon. So late, in fact, that if I had known, I could have actually worked that day and simply left early. I wouldn't have lost as much money. But I was just glad that this nightmare of a hassle was about to be over. Once again, a nondescript third-party delivery truck arrived. A large man with a black bandana and dark sunglasses stepped out of the ragged truck. He was wearing a stained white t-shirt and black vest. He had a tattoo on his forearm that read, Suck my left nut. I took him on a tour of the foreboding stairwell, and like the delivery people before him, he wasn't pleased. Oh man, nobody told me about this. When we got back out to the truck, his assistant, who appeared to be way too small to be a mover, had the refrigerator out and was waiting for us. Surprise, surprise, he was pointing out some damage on the side of the appliance. I stepped up to the frail associate who reeked of marijuana and observed the damage. Again, it was a small dent, but this time it was only on the side and near the back. It would barely be visible once the refrigerator was in place. I can live with that. The large tattooed man shook his head. Nah, man. You need to refuse this because of damage. You paid a lot of money for this thing. I'll report it damaged and customer service will call you to reschedule a delivery. There was no way I was going through this again. I stood chest to chest with the man who was much bigger than me and spoke through gritted teeth. Take it up to my kitchen right now. The man could see I was serious and got to work. He and his minuscule associate used mover straps to haul the big refrigerator into the building. The tattooed man barked at his puny associate to get in the correct position as they attempted to get the appliance up the first flight of stairs. They halted when the refrigerator hit the ceiling. Sorry man, it's too big. We can't get it up these stairs. I shouldn't have been shocked, but I was. They were trying to carry the refrigerator upright, so I shouted out obvious instructions. You're gonna have to lean it over a little bit to get it into the stairwell, and then you'll be clear of the ceiling. Hey, look, I'm not Hulk Hogan. You're just gonna have to buy a smaller refrigerator. I guess that was the last straw for me. I have a refrigerator upstairs in my kitchen that is the same size as this one. If they got that one up there, you can get this one up there. The tattooed man leaned over to me and spoke in a loud whisper. Look, my regular partner called in sick. This weed-smoking kid is just a useless temp. If I had my regular guy, we could do it, so just reschedule for another day. 
I could feel my flesh burning as my temper began to bubble like lava. I tried to keep it in check because I feared what my actions may be if it erupted. You're just an outsourced worker. You're not part of the company I bought this refrigerator from. You have no skin in the game. You don't care. And I've had enough. Take this refrigerator and take your lazy ass and get the hell out of here before I lose my temper and chop your damn head off. My eyes must have been displaying my rage because the big intimidating man's face was overcome with fear as he hustled the refrigerator out of my building into their truck and sped away. I called the home improvement store from which I ordered this refrigerator, canceled my order, and got a refund. I then ordered the very same refrigerator from one of their competitors who assured me I would receive it the following day. I would have to call in sick again and lose another day's pay, but I was in a bind. On top of that, the temperature was rising. I stepped out onto the balcony and looked down at my ten pounds of chicken. The skin was now greenish-gray. The once bright white fatty pieces were now urine yellow. My chicken was spoiled and ruined. The fuse on my temper was now non-existent. The next day, I discovered that the new big box home improvement store that I had ordered the refrigerator from also used a third-party delivery service. I knew this because I was greeted by the same messy-haired, rotten-toothed delivery man who had started this whole nightmare ball rolling. Well, 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 we meet again. I barked at him. Shut your mouth, get my refrigerator, and move it up to my kitchen right now or else. He found my fury amusing and grinned. Hold your horses, tough guy. I gotta inspect it for damage first. His robust, bald companion pushed the refrigerator to the edge of the truck, and the wiry delivery man picked up a crowbar. He used it to tear the styrofoam and plastic from the large appliance. As the scruffy man disappeared behind the refrigerator, I heard a loud bang. When he re-emerged, he was holding a devious smirk. Sorry to say, I found some damage. I hopped up into the truck and observed the dented side of the refrigerator. The disgusting delivery driver spit a tobacco-laced wad of phlegm near my feet. You'll have to call and schedule another delivery. I jerked the crowbar from the delivery man's hand and pounded him over the head with it. Blood cascaded down his face as he collapsed to the ground and began convulsing. The robust, bald delivery man was shocked by my actions, but not as shocked as he was when I drove the claw of the crowbar into his mouth, shattering the majority of his teeth instantly. I then jerked the crowbar upward, shoving the iron bar through the roof of his mouth and up into his brain. He dropped to the ground dead next to his convulsing partner. I watched on as the messy-haired delivery man's last death twitches finally subsided. It wasn't easy, but I managed to push both dead bodies into the back of their crappy delivery truck and drove it to an old abandoned bridge. From there, I pushed it over the edge into the roaring river below. Nobody would ever find them. I had committed two ghastly murders, but damn it felt good. 
The next day, I called my repairman and had him replace the compressor in my old refrigerator. It was a lot of money for a repair, but I was happy to give my well-earned money to a nice, honest, hard-working man. Hopefully, the new compressor would breathe new life into my old, faithful refrigerator friend, and it would last another 17 years. The Messenger I stood on the sidewalk and stared at the house for a few minutes before approaching the door. I hate this part. I'm an introvert. I don't like talking to people in general, let alone complete strangers. It's awkward, strange, and makes me anxious. The people usually think I have some kind of angle or that this is a con job of some sort. It's not. I took a few deep breaths, wiped my sweaty palms off of my jeans, and knocked on the door. A short woman in her late forties answered. She had more gray hair than one might expect from a woman of such an age. Her face housed many stress wrinkles, especially around her eyes and forehead. She held a polite smile, but her eyes displayed confusion. Yes? Can I help you? She held the door, only partially open in case she needed to close it on me quickly. She was being cautious. I don't blame her. I'm a 30-year-old man with broad shoulders and eyes that some have described as beady. I always try to hold a cheerful smile in these situations to put the other person at ease, but it's not authentic and many people can sense that. Are you Margaret? Her brow crinkled and the confusion in her eyes swelled. Who are you? My name is Tim. I'm sorry to bother you, ma'am, but I knew David. Can we talk? This was the part where people usually did one of three things. They'd welcome me with open arms, tell me to get the hell off their property, or start asking questions. What do you want? Questions. Very common. I guess I want some... closure. My smile dropped and sadness overtook my expression. This got me in the front door. It normally did. The woman led me to her living room. It was a cozy room decorated with elegant antiques. She asked me if I would like some coffee or tea. I told her water would be preferred. I got nervous in these uncomfortable situations and my mouth would get bone dry. After handing me a bottle of spring water, we sat down in the charming room and she was the one that got the ball rolling. Were you friends with David? I took a moment. This was a combination of theater for Margaret's benefit, but also to make sure I got my wording correct. No, I wasn't. Uh, Quite the opposite, in fact. I don't like him a bit. As a matter of fact, I think he's a jerk. I half expected Margaret to be angry by this remark. After all, it was her only son I was speaking of. But this wasn't the case. Her telling eyes expressed empathy. She knew as I did that her son was not a good person. 
What can I do for you, Tim? I smiled at her. The time had come for honesty. I must admit that I misled you with something I said earlier. Oh? I told you that I knew David. The fact is that I know David. She shook her head as she spoke. I'm sorry, I don't understand. David speaks to me from the dead. And this was the part where people got furious. Margaret was no different. She stood up and pointed to the front door. Get out of my house! How dare you try to swindle a grieving mother? You're not grieving. You killed him. She froze. Her bottom lip began to quiver and tears filled her honest eyes. Within a few seconds, she collapsed into a chair and buried her face in her hands. She collected herself quickly and looked up at me. Nobody could have known that. David didn't even know that. I nodded. She was correct. David's cause of death was determined to be cardiac arrest. Uncommon for a man of 29, but not unheard of. No autopsy was performed. That's why they didn't find the poison. David was evil. I knew it from the day he was born. She leaned her face in close to me. Look into my eyes. Do you see evil? I shook my head, for there was nothing malevolent about this woman. David's eyes were always lacking something. There was something dead behind them, even as a child. We couldn't have pets. David always killed them. I should have done something then, but I didn't. I'll always regret that. She rose up, wiped the tears from her eyes, and spoke without remorse. I was supposed to be away on vacation, but my flight was canceled. The next available flight was the following afternoon, so I returned home. Obviously, David wasn't expecting me. I found him burying the bodies of two young girls in our cellar. Margaret cleared her throat to make sure her following statement was loud and clear. My son was a serial killer. There are over 30 bodies of young girls in the cellar, some as young as seven years old. She paused and took a few more breaths to calm herself. He needed to be stopped. I nodded, for she was correct. Hell, I wanted to stand up and applaud. This was a brave woman, a good woman, a woman who saved countless lives. I'm not sorry for what I did. But David is my son, and I'll always love him. Please tell him that. I smiled at her. He knows. I ran the straight razor across her throat swiftly. He doesn't care. Margaret bled out and died before she fully understood what happened. That was the most I was able to do for her. The dead have been able to communicate with me for as long as I can remember. It's a blessing, but on days like this one, it can feel like a curse. David was a psychopathic jackass who had been pestering me for weeks to confront his mother on his behalf. 
He hadn't moved on to the true afterlife yet. If he had, he would have shed his insane side and found redemption. I tried to explain that to him, but he was having none of it. He wanted to stay earthbound and exact revenge on his mother. Unbeknownst to David, he's not in control like he was prior to his death. When he reunites with his mother, he'll find that out. His mother was a good soul and will be much stronger than him. She'll be able to grab him by the proverbial ear and drag him to where he needs to be. He'll be punished, but also enlightened. This wasn't the first person I had to kill and likely won't be the last, but there's always a good reason behind it all, whether I'm fully aware of it or not. It's time for me to go now. A messenger's work is never done. Hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Visit maniacontheloose.com, sign up for our newsletter, and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. Very soon.